Welcome to the Original Gangsters Podcast. I'm your host, Scott Bernstein. And today we're going to bring on a special guest, someone that I've known for about a decade and I've uh, grown very fond of. Uh, he, you know, we talk about people on here that have, you know, lived a movie script. Well, we're going to kind of, he definitely lived a movie script, but it's kind of from a different angle, a different perspective. His name is Paul Zaberski, uh, former, uh, attorney in the Detroit mob, kind of an in-house counsel for the Jackaloni crew for 20 plus years. And, uh, I hope I'm not offending you when I, when I say, uh, you had a reputation around town for a while as kind of a Macomb County fixer, quote unquote. Well, yeah, absolutely. It's that's a fact. It's not, <laughs> okay, so you I, just know, I mean, whatever they made it public. You know what I mean? There's not another lawyer in the state of Michigan that has as many cases thrown out as me, and there's nobody even close. I mean, there's thirty five thousand lawyers in the state of Michigan, yeah. and not one will step up and challenge me on that. But Paulie. You know, uh, you know, I met him in, in some of my reporting uh, duties. And uh, again, he this guy is just has so many great stories. He has written a book called From Pepperdine to Prison, which discusses his roller coaster uh, career in law, as well as getting caught up in a a, a, a drug case uh, about what, six years ago. Yeah, he's, he's, running he's, for, he's running for judge. Yeah, just to clarify I mean, there's not one person ever, other than the FBI, that classifies this as a drug case. Okay. We can talk about your case. But, oh, I don't care about talking about my case, but do you know what I went to prison for? <laughs> well, I, really I know it had to do with trying to well, s- secure, you know, uh, s- cocaine for social events. It didn't really look like yeah, you were necessarily actually, went to selling cocaine. I went to prison because I, on my third indictment, I was facing 105 years and a $10 million fine, and I would not cooperate with the federal government. I mean, I had heard things about the federal government. I was a fan of the FBI until I got targeted. When you get targeted, you either flip to give information or you go to prison. You let yourself get jammed because there's no other alternative. Well, they use what are called Gustavo tactics. They bleed them till you plead them. So on my third indictment, I was just running out of money. You know, I mean, I've been a millionaire three times in my life. Okay. And from where I come from, I really didn't care about the money. Well, you can say that when you have it, you know, <laughs> yeah. and when you don't, it's a little bit harder. So I wrote this book more as a public service than anything else. I had no idea on how corrupt the federal government was and what well, they will do to uh, get the information from you. You know, And we know that the area that you came from, Macomb County, has been under scrutiny you know, well before your case hit and oh, now yeah. well after your case well, has Scott, been put it this adjudicated going, for being a kind of a, uh, a hotbed of corruption. Yeah, well, put it this way. We only had two prosecutors, what they call district attorneys in other cities, in the last 50 years. Both were federally indicted. And the amount of corruption, now you got to put it in perspective. There's only 800,000 residents in Macomb County, Michigan, often called the most corrupt county in the United States. There's 10 million in L.A. County. There's 5 million in Cook County. There's 5 million in the boroughs in New York, in Miami. I don't know, 3, 4 million. You know, in in now political corruption is now number one on the FBI hit list, mm-hmm. overtaking child pornography, 
uh, pedophilia, uh, bank robbery, cartels, mob activity, political corruption is number one. So when they see a guy like me, a lawyer, a criminal defense lawyer with access to information, which I have a ton of, which I was sitting on for 30 years, and I shut my mouth, and I watched all kinds of egregious activity, mainly in the courts, judges, prosecutors, and law enforcement. And I shut my mouth. I kept quiet. They knew when I was running for judge, it was like a perfect storm. I mean, it was an eye of the, of the storm. Here, we'll just press on this guy. He'll squeeze him. He'll give us information. And we can continue our investigations, you know. And their main target was our prosecutor, Eric Smith. When I get so many cases dismissed, well, it made sense to them. And I own a condo in Colombia, Medellin, they call it Medellin, Medellin, man, you know, in Colombia. I own a condo over there. So they put in the in the newspapers that I was trafficking two kilos of cocaine from Detroit to Medellin, man. I mean, what's the fucking <laughs> well and so people understand, I you know, I've read the I've read through the case file. The people that uh, Paul was dealing with in these narcotics transactions, th- these were not mobsters or drug kingpins. No, th- these were like small, you know, relatively small time. Uh, Absolutely, but see, they lead to Detroit. bigger things. You right. got to remember, I'm going to Me- Mexico with the head, with the, the president of the Teamsters Union. I'm going to Mexico with the chief judge on the circuit court in Macomb County. You know, all these political big shots and all that stuff, and. You know, I know people in law enforcement and, you know, they were very comfortable talking in front of me because I'm one of the few guys that worked my way and I wasn't born into that, you know, and uh, it's just, you know, I just learned early on that everybody had their price and the political corruption is rampant and the FBI's got a good case to justify their existence for this. But they call cases like mine collateral damage. So. You don't have to be guilty of anything, Scott. They can they can manufacture, orchestrate, manipulate. They can create a very brand new charge, which my case had no precedent. I went to a fucking federal prison. When they say one year, it actually cost me six years on my life and about a million dollars because they couldn't get a forfeiture or a seizure or anything on my property. Well, they, they put you in in federal prison in Milan, Michigan, yeah. which was lucky for you. It's not that far from Detroit, but it's a, it's a, a serious place with serious people. Yes. Uh, a lot of uh, mobsters, uh, mob shot callers, uh, biker bosses, drug kingpins are put in Milan. Yeah. Well, they have, they have them all separated now. So then most of the mobsters are gone. I think my point though, Paul, just so they, so the pub, so the audience understands you, you didn't go to a club fed. No, that, you didn't that, go to some low. You know, I was listening. Here's the drug dealer that you were, I. You were in a. You were in the the buying drugs from. He went down to fucking uh, Morgantown to, yeah. where they don't have any fences. It's a camp. I was supposed to go there, but I ended up in a prison. Right. You know, it's a serious prison. You know, right. and uh, this is what the federal government can do to you. You know, if you do not cooperate with them, I just chose to sit on my Fifth Amendment rights, and I thought that the truth would set me free. Uh, but in, you know, in an existential sense, it did <laughs> because I got rid of all the garbage. Well, Paul, let's just go back. You know, you, you grew up uh, in Detroit, uh, went to Pepperdine Law School. Um, yes, I grew up in the east side of Detroit from very low income family and all that. And we were just taught at, you know, at 
the people on the other side of the tracks go to college. We don't go to college. You know? uh, I, I understand you're a lawyer too. I, I didn't know that. Well, I went to I went to law school and I got a degree. I don't practice. Right. Right. I don't either. Yes, I'm a, I'm a, J, I'm I'm a, a JD. You don't practice anymore. I never I'm happy to brag about the fact but, that I'm not a Pepper, lawyer. For people that might not know about Pepperdine, that's in Malibu, California. Yes. Uh, Pepperdine is you're, you're literally going to school in a postcard. I mean, it's the most gorgeous oh, campus the, I've ever seen in my life. You're on a mountain overlooking the Pacific Ocean. To put it in perspective, Scott, Pepperdine is, in fact, the third most expensive law school in the United States behind Harvard and Stanford. Okay. Now they changed the name to Caruso Law School because Mr. Caruso donated $40 million to Pepperdine to change the name. So his kid could get in. Apparently, that's the way it works. It's a big money school. You know, matter of fact, when they we would see movie stars around, you know, being in Malibu and all that, and the Pepperdine students kind of look down on the movie stars because they don't have as much money as the students. Right. I mean, in our parking lot, they, they, you know, the Mercedes, there's Porsches, there's a Lamborghini. I didn't even have a fucking car, man. I didn't have a bicycle over there up in the mountains. You know, it's bra- It's literally it's so breathtaking. So, I'm not someone who gets choked I mean, up by nature. But when I was in Malibu driving on Pacific Coast Highway and you can't and help but miss it. I it's mean, just you, the most beautiful, picturesque uh, setting you could ever imagine. Oh, yes, absolutely, man. I mean, just weather that I'm mean, everything about it. But law school's hard. I, you know, see, I went, I went to college only because I was a victim of police brutality at 19 years old. And I just couldn't understand how this happens in the United States of America. And it's very common over in Cook County, in the L.A. County, you know, and it's pretty common here in Detroit area. You know, at the time it was anyway. I mean, to put things in perspective, they they beat on this uh, Rodney King for like, I don't know, 12, 17 minutes. You know, Malice we had a, we had our, um, are you gonna talk? We had our own Rodney King in Detroit, Malice Green. Malice Green for like five minutes before they killed him because yeah. he wouldn't show him his license. Uh, you know, then <laughs> then this Tyrell Nichols for a few minutes before they killed him. George Floyd for 11 minutes. They I have it recorded from witness statements and everything that they beat on me while handcuffed for two hours. You know, they pistol whipped me, uh, opened my head up, stitching the whole thing, broke my wrists. You know, they kneel on the handcuffs so your wrist break. You know, uh, the whole thing. And I mean, and I had a... I had a witness came forward about a year later after we filed, uh, we were filing a lawsuit. So that's how I ended up going to Michigan State. And I was like, I just wanted to be educated. I didn't understand how they can get away with it and cover it up. And uh, interestingly, in my case, in that police brutality suit, they they had, you know, phone calls. This lady's calling the police department. Hey, they're, they're pistol whipping a guy on my, uh, on my front lawn, you know, and, uh, and, it, and then they hang up on her and then she calls back again and she calls back again. She had it all recorded because she had a digital clock, you know, called at 1201, 1220, 1235. Now they're pistol whipping him. You know, they're killing this man. Well, he stole a car. He tried to escape from the police. This and that. <laughs> and, you know, mind your own fucking business, that kind of shit. Well, you know, this lady was just afraid to come out of her house. That's all. But we found her about a year later. Like, complete uh i don't know happenstance i guess this is the word she was at a detroit tiger game talking about you know what she witnessed 
And my aunt was standing, sitting behind her. She tapped on her shoulder. Yeah, I lived right down the street. We found a witness. She said the exact same thing I said. And then they, the police claimed that there was an electrical power outage from 12 o'clock till 3 in the morning when all this happened. So, therefore, there were no tapes. There was no <laughs> evidence. They just covered the whole thing up. And I got some money from it. So, I went to college, you know. You know, but, but after after college, after Michigan State, I was you know broke. Uh, my parents didn't; they would have gave me the money to go to college. They just had limited resources, you know. And so I got a scholarship to go to Pepperdine, which was pretty bizarre to me. I don't know how. I mean, it just happened. And uh, here I am going to Malibu. I'm just from the a kid from the east side of Detroit, man. And I was like, wow, I'm in law school, man. <laughs> That's cool. I don't have to work. You know, you know the feeling, right? <laughs> but just to give people uh, just some quick, you know, slice of knowledge from the Detroit underworld that we just referenced, the, the Rodney King thing happened in April of 1992. Uh, Paulie's situation, I'm sure, happened in the early 80s. Uh, mine happened in 1980. Yeah. OK, so early 80s. The Rodney King situation in L.A. was April 92. In Detroit, we had our own version of, of Rodney King, which was Malice Green, Malice which yeah. was only six months after Rodney King. Right. I went, listen, uh, Scott, Scotty, I went to one of my first fundraisers I went to was uh, Butson and Nevers. The two right. The di- the di- so people know the difference was Rodney King wasn't killed. Malice Green was murdered. Murdered by these two cops. And, and these Butson and, uh, and Nevers. And they, yeah. I went to a fundraiser for, for Butson. Okay. I didn't know it at the time. I thought it had something to do with the courts. When I get in there, I'm, I'm donating $200 to these two cops that killed this fucker. And I'm yep. like, what the? F-? So I went in the kitchen and I pulled my car in the back and I unloaded the cases of liquor they had for the, all these cops were in there. And I just took off. I wanted my, you can imagine how bad I wanted my $200. <laughs> so, uh, Paulie, what year did you come back to Detroit and, and get uh, into the bar here? Um, it took me a little while in the bar. Yeah, it was like 87, 88. I passed the bar in 88. And I graduated 86. Okay, so but I was in California and I was partying a little bit, so I stayed out there a little longer. My last student loan came in late, and so I was lightening up, you know. Uh, At what point did you meet Frank the Bomb and uh, Mr. Vito Jack? Frank the Bomb, I was best friends with Sam Scarcelli, who was best friends with the Bomb. The Bomb, the bomb was all well, I seen him as a kid when I was a younger teenager when I used to go to Mr. Paul's Chop House, have the mm-hmm. whole entourage, the whole thing, but I uh. Became friends with them right around that time, right around, I'd say like 89, right around there, right before 90. And uh, and I was taking the bar exam at the time, and uh, I met him it- up at the lake. We were partying, and, and he says, hey, man, is this our new lawyer, man? And he says, this guy's all fucked up. He <laughs> says, what, what the fuck? He says, well, you know, he says he's a good guy, you know, he's one of us, this kind of thing. And, and my uncle's happened to work for some of the Detroit mobsters and all that other stuff. So, you know, I had some credibility in this and that, but we just hit it off from like the very first day. Well, for, for, like, I would say that I spent more time with him than any other person in the last four years. I, I have, I have really, really positive feelings uh, towards Frank, the bomb. I mean, I'm not going to, what it is what it is. He was it not he was he was a gangster to the core. It was in his DNA. He was a criminal, uh every every cell of his being. But uh he was very good to me. 
You know, never, someone never, tried, never put his hand in my pocket. Never tried to put his hand in my pocket. To me, okay, you gotta understand. In my world, these guys, when I was with these guys, they were the most honorable people that I knew. Because you know, I did criminal defense work, so you know a lot of criminals, and most of them are just guys that drink too much or do too many drugs and they screw up. And and then I knew some people in law enforcement that weren't flying straight, you know. <laughs> and then you meet the real criminals, the judges and prosecutors, yeah. and oh my lord, government doesn't the even hold a candle to the organized crime. It, does, it doesn't. And these guys, they protected me more than to try to draw me in. Now there's some factions in the Detroit mob that try to draw me into this or that, but I was always protected by these guys. Because, you know, uh, Jack Toko, he liked me. I don't know why. I didn't even know him that good. You know, and he covered for me. And, and I was always getting in trouble. So, <laughs> you know, it's no secret. But um, well, I got along really good. And Frankie DeBomb was just a good, honorable guy. You know what I mean? Uh, in, that in that world, he was. In that world, yes, uh, in that world, world just was like, his bond. And look, man, so when I get to prison, one of the first guys that was waiting to meet me was uh, uh, Randy Yeager, Matt. You know, from the Outlaw Motorcycle Club, he's the president who got Taco in there for the yeah. international president. In so the just yeah, I, Paul. Just so you know, our audience is uh, it's it's very widespread. So I always like to let people know. You know, I, you can't assume that they know everybody in Detroit. Oh yeah, right, right. I get so it, let's I get so Jack Toko was a longtime Godfather. Right, yeah, they were yeah, right. Uh, Frank the Bomb Bomberito, who we who who we talking about here, was a. Um, you know, we, talk, we talk about OGs on on the podcast. Yeah. He is the OG of all OGs, but right. without question, the most colorful character. Well, if you YouTube it, Taco comes up as America's number mob. one gangster. If yeah. you YouTube it, and, and Taco the, was the international president of the Outlaws, right? And um, you know, his right hand man was Randy Yegar. So, and the fun. bomb, just so that people know, the bomb was the Detroit mob's liaison. To the bikers and the yes. outlaws that yes. we're talking about now, Taco Bowman was the the the, the outlaws' godfather for a long time. Was right. based in Detroit, and then Randy Yeager, who um, Paul is talking about, who we met in jail, was Taco, one of Taco's right hand men, and and ran all of the outlaw activities. Hey man, I gotta correct you. It ain't jail, man. It's fucking prison. Prison, sorry. <laughs> Jail's <less> uh, <laughs> and Randy Yeager ran all the stuff. In I don't North, mean to laugh. North, uh, Northwest Indiana. Yeah, he's responsible for the largest bombing in American history outside of Oklahoma and New York City. Yeah. Where he bombed that whole Chicago city block, but nobody died. But he pled guilty to five murders and a, a one-man RICO and all that. And he's getting out in 2025. Yeah. I just got a letter from him. I can't show it to you. But, well, <laughs> but I think the point is that your relationship with Frank Bomarito, and at this point when you're going away, it, Frank was dead. Yes, but so, I still had friends of friends. Right, I, but it just it shows that it the it it who you know can sometimes oh, help you even yeah, after that I person's mean, gone. Total, I mean, you get total prison respect because I didn't require. Scott, put this in perspective, man. Everyone that gets targeted by the FBI, yeah. save one in about a million. I know they got a ninety nine point nine percent conviction. Ninety nine point nine 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 percent flip rate when you're a lawyer over fifty. <laughs> So you could just look it up and Google it. Man. Everyone cooperates. I chose not to, facing 105 years. Then that got dismissed and they re-indicted me. And I didn't even know what the fuck it was. Hosting a house party, you know, where some people got high. I didn't know I was responsible for someone else's actions, but it's not a party until someone gets high. <laughs> <You know? laughs> 
So, so tell people, as a badge of honor. So tell people like it's the late eighties. Uh, at this point, Billy Jack Ohlone, who was Frank's kind of rabbi in the mafia, Billy Jack was uh, one of the street bosses of the Detroit mob. Him and his brother uh, Tony Jack, they ran the streets for half se- over a half century. Yeah. Um, and Billy was more of the good cop, and Tony Jack was more of the bad cop. And that, and playing in that role of being the good cop and being more of a jovial, uh, you know, uh, good time Charlie type with being Billy. He gravitated towards Frank the Bomb, who's oh, he loved they, they were so unconventional. The Bomb uh, did a five-year bit for him, right? But the Bomb and, and Billy were inseparable. And uh, I remember there, you know, there would uh, I saw something in a wiretap once where Billy was getting, I think I, I forgot who it was, but he was talking to somebody who was complaining about Frank, and he's like, "What you're saying might be true, but it doesn't matter. He's my guy." Yeah. Oh <laughs> and no, that's, he might that's be a bad. he might be a son of a bitch, but he's my son I of a bitch. I think that's the reason that he magnetized towards me is because when I first met him, I was a little fucking you know I was partying a little bit. I I didn't recognize him. I'm sitting with him at the table, man, and I go, "Hey, man, I go, you wouldn't know it by the degenerate crowd that's here tonight, but it's a big deal because the old man's coming here." And they're not supposed to be in the same room with him and Frankie the Bomb. The bosses go. And he goes, is that right? He says, let me tell you this story. My brother Tony says, why do you hang around with this one guy? He says, I take him all over the fucking world. He's a dirty, nasty, no good motherfucker, but I like him. He said, <laughs> he said so I'm starting to like you. Does that make you a fucking degenerate? I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> who is this old man? <laughs> it's fucking Billy Jack. You know? <laughs> the guy who whacked off him, by the way. Yeah, allegedly. I mean, why, why doesn't anybody really come out and say <laughs> Why doesn't anybody ever come out and say it? The guy who well, I mean, I've said it. I, I think that the I'll get your, I'm interested to get your opinion on this. Uh, coming from a, a guy that was, you know, immersed with a lot of the top suspects in the Hoffa case for much of your career and represented some of those guys. Uh, why do you think that in the overall narrative, in terms of American uh, mythology, pop culture, what you see on television, what you see in the movies? Why do you think Detroit always gets um, marginalized okay. in a in an assassination in a murder that they were a hundred percent in control in? But if you watch The Irishman or you watch other adaptations, right. it looks like we were just See, Detroit, Detroit were, side, were side players. Detroit being known as one of the most violent cities in America, everybody knows that, you know. But Detroit was like the nonviolent mob. They were right. whacking people like they were in Philadelphia, in New York, in Miami, in L.A. They weren't doing that. It was a weapon of last it was resort. A very high profit market yeah. uh, because gambling was so big in Detroit and Chicago. You know, sports book. That's, it was the biggest in America here. And up until then, and now that drew national attention, but they didn't have the technology to the DNA and all that other stuff to connect that all that up. And uh, my understanding was they they didn't mind Hoffa. They kind of liked them. And well, Billy and Tony order, liked him. They socialized with him for 30 years. But yeah. they're never going to find a body. When they start just digging up every couple of years, they're going to find – they're never going to find that body because <laughs> it doesn't exist. And I used to – fuck. listen, it was taboo to sit at the table, you know, when you're at the closed meetings and stuff, never bring up Hoffa. You can't say the name. But I did it all the time because the old man got a kick out of me. And I go, hey, man. I go, hey, Mr. G, what the fuck, man? Tell me what you did with Hoffa. Script it out, man. I'll write the shortest book of all time. He goes, what's the other shortest book? I said, the great Scott, chefs of Scotland. Fuck it, man. I'll write a one-page thing, man. Just show me where diagram this fucking thing. Him and, <laughs> he just Frank and Billy. Frank oh, and Billy. Jack will start cracking up. 
And then he switched to talking. It took this woman. I'm serious. He didn't know that I didn't speak full Italian. And I don't. I just, I'm just half Italian. I don't, I don't know. And they switched to Italian. And he looked at me and I was like, like, everything's okay. Don't worry about it. I got it. You know? and, and I don't even speak Italian. It took him like five years to catch on. And the bomb was- he just left. He was, that was funny, amusing. You know, I was told that the bomb and Billy used to refer to the Hoffa case as the secret recipe. Yeah, they're never, well, they're yeah. never gonna find the secret recipe. Yeah, no, no, yeah, yeah. You, you see, hey, you, how did he say it? They ain't gonna find nobody because there ain't nobody. Yeah, <laughs> you know. <laughs> oh, Scotty, can I tell your viewers this? They might get a kick out of it. When I met Scotty, uh, I was asked, uh, there were three mob bosses there, two captains, a couple associates. We were at Luciano's, you know, talking, and this thing was a uh, so they come to me, Paulie, man, you gotta do your job, you're the concierge, you know. You're the concierge if it gets you paid or if it gets you laid. Okay, 30 years ago, I meant something. I don't mean nothing nowadays. But anyway, this Bernstein thing. We got a Bernstein. I said, how do I know that name? That guy, the journalist that's coming around. Yeah. He said, well, he's coming to parties. He's interviewing people. He's got a camera and shit. I said, oh, yeah, but he ain't filming nothing. It's just a fucking photo. No, no, it's a real camera. He's filming people. We got to know. I, I said, so what do you want me to do? They said, well, we want you to, you know, want to see what's going on. And, you know, you can get along with anybody. I said, well, yeah, man, I'll, I'll do you one better. I'll take him down to New Orleans. And, you know, maybe I'll open yeah, up. Just so people them. understand, there was another bit. Just so there was a business opportunity for all of us out in New Orleans. Oh, yeah. And, yeah, and Paul, you know, they knew that I was going out there with another partner. Right. Ryan, yeah. There was and, nothing illegal or nothing. Right. Minister and, about and, anything. I was just told to ask. Well, right. So Paulie is is. I kind of knew. I, I had an idea that Paulie was there to watch me. I said to the guy. I remember telling this one boss on uh, the mob in Detroit. I said, well, "What does he want me to do?" He said, "Well, get him drinking. Get him to open up." I said, "I don't even think that guy drinks. I, I've seen him around, and he doesn't see like teetotaler to me. But whatever." I says. Well, some ammunition, this and that. He, I said, what do you want me to do, slip up a Mickey? And he said, well, that's not a bad idea. I go, hey, man, I ain't doing all that. I fucking asked the guy whatever. A, so a, I knew um, when I got down to New Orleans, I remember you calling me about 7 o'clock. So we just got in the room. We're going to take a nap. I go, take a nap in New Orleans? <laughs> Fuck, are we on the same page here, buddy? Uh, no, man, we're going to party, man. Let's go. And I kind of forgot by what my job was to do down there until I got a call from this guy. Hey, what is, what's uh, what's up with Bernstein? I'm like, oh, I got to get back to you. I forgot to ask the guy. We just had a good time down there, right? Remember when L left his camera on the, on the river? Yeah, and then yeah, we, we almost met. We were all going back on the same flight. I remember we we almost it, we, it was a wild night the night before that, and then we almost oh, missed. Yeah, I just back reported to back to him. Uh, hey, uh, but, the guy's a journalist. He's educated, and you know he's just doing his job. I that's the way I saw it. And uh, you know, I think there was a um, people are scared or intimidated, but what by what what they don't know. And nobody knew who I was. Scott, I, wa- you I know. wasn't Italian. I wasn't an East Side. Right. And he's Jewish too, on top of it. Right. And, and, I jumped, and, you know, and out of the, on a kind of out of nowhere, I pop up in the late 2000s. Oh, yeah, man. Oh, yeah. And the everybody Jewish was kind of like, who is this thing? guy? He had this big conspiracy theory yeah. and all this bullshit. You know, I said, the guy's just doing his job, I think. I don't think he's got any ulterior motives other than he's going to probably be somebody someday. I don't know. So the he's a journalist. First time I met Paul, uh, I want to say I put out my Detroit Mob Confidential 
documentary in 09 or it was either 09 or 10. And I got a message from the bomb who I had over the previous, let's say three years had written about, he was in the doc, he was in the book. Uh, and someone told me, Hey, the, the bomb wants to meet you. Um, and I was, I'll always, I'll meet anybody. I'm, I'm not someone who hides behind my uh, computer screen. I'm someone who, who believes in. Yeah. I always respected that. Right. And, and uh, so I, I went, I, I made sure I, you know, took the proper precautions and uh, I went and that was the first time I met him. And I met Paul, I believe at, at that event, it was at East, uh, East side manor. Yeah. At, at Eastport. Yeah. He used to uh, hold like a Tuesday night spaghetti night. Um, they do the fucking karaoke drove me nuts, man. Yeah. All the Dago's are, oh, excuse me. I can't say it. All the Italian guys in there would sing like Dean Martin or Frank Sinatra and all the bikers would be Johnny Cash. Remember that? Yeah. Uh, and Frank uh, would get up and do his, uh, his Frank Sinatra, uh, you know, my way. And then he'd yeah. do his other, ra- he'd, uh, he'd get up and he'd rap. Um, yeah, so, so I met him. At, so around, let's say I met him in 2009, 2010. He was still, uh, you know, standoffish with me to a degree and, and guarded. And I don't blame him. He was, a, you know, kind of an active, he still was an active member of, of the Detroit mob at that point. At some point, a couple of years later, after Billy Jackaloni died, uh, Frank kind of went independent, um, was was kind of blocked. Yeah, Frank had no problem talking about anything that was on public record. So, so at that, so at that point. The man had 26 years in prison. Okay? Yeah. Now, the modern federal prison system is dramatically different than the old federal prison system. But Frank did right? it's, 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 uh, it's horrible in there. Uh, the conditions. I mean, to give you a perspective, in the one unit I lived in, the doors are metal and they're so warped that not one door can close. So you can't have a lockdown. They're just all running around screaming and yelling till four in the morning. Every, there's no let up every fucking day. Right? It's a horrible place, man. But really for, the, for the bomb, for, for a guy that, uh, let's say, uh, up until he was 60, had done a lot of prison time. Um, let's say between, let's say his ages of 20 and 60. Yeah, but see, he, he didn't do any time. He, he didn't do any time his last 25 years on earth. So. See, they were doing shorter sentences. They were getting yeah. attempts on a, a solicitation of murders, 20 years, but they would plead to an attempt that's just five years. And then they used to have parole so they could get out early. And there's no more parole in the federal system. You can't, there's no early releases. You know, no, when the bomb beat his last case, the last case the bomb took, well, last big case he took was the Warren, um, the, the bombing, the bombings yeah. of the trash companies, right? And then John Pree. But you uh, didn't know that I actually, I actually represented him on his last case in right, which, the city of Mount Clemens, where he was charged with an assault charge, assault and battery. He was sixty-six or sixty-eight at the time, and I asked him, I said, "Frankie, I will get rid of this case." But they love these gangsters love to talk in court. They're very comfortable talking in court because they're always in fucking court, you know, probably more than me. But anyway, so I said, please don't say nothing. I'm going to get rid of this case. And the judge looks at the file and she doesn't have the there's sometimes on the lien check. If there's more federal, they won't have the record, you know, unless they have to look actively look for it. And she knows everybody in Detroit area knows who he has, you know, so, so just where's his criminal history? I said. And the bomb, I said, don't talk. And he said, what do you mean? You mean I hit somebody? He said, no, nah, I ain't hit nobody in 20 years. I shoot motherfuckers, but I ain't hit nobody in 20 years. And it's on a fucking court record, you know? 
everybody's in the course looking. I'm like, oh, Frank, come on, man. You know, <laughs> the first time I saw the bomb, I didn't meet him at this point. Was at uh, Jackie Jackaloni, who's Billy Jack's son, the alleged current uh, mob boss of the Detroit family, went on trial for a Rico. We talk about 99.9% right. uh, yeah. conviction rate for the feds. He well, beat the case in Oklahoma. Well, he had an indictment set aside. Yeah. So. But so, but I want to just play on the story you just told. So yeah. I'm in the gallery. And they probably didn't recognize me at this point. And I could hear uh, it was the first time I was ever face to face with with all these guys, because uh, Jackie, Frankie and Billy Jack were all in court. And I could hear Billy say to Frank. Um, uh, well, I'm trying to think what the yeah, I can, I can hear Billy say to Frank when the verdict comes in please be quiet. <laughs> like, don't, don't make a scene. And the verdict comes in and it's not guilty. And the bomb, thank you, Jesus. Of the American justice system. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he just starts, starts uh, doing a victory lap in court. He was, you know, and he did. In fact, I hate to be stereotypical, but he looked like every gangsters that's been in every movie yeah. since the twenties. Okay. Right. Didn't he? He was very unapologetic. You know, who he was. if you just looked at him, he looked like yeah. wow. You know, if you passed you on the street, you go wow. It's like, and he was just a stick. Or... He was just a stick up kid. He wasn't a guy that was really born into the mob, even though he had some cousins. Uh, but you know, he he was a stick up kid that uh, made his name robbing people. And uh, one day he, he robs a, a, a either a game. Uh, or... It was Carl's Chop House downtown. But I thought that was after. Across uh, I, don't, I don't know. He got caught. He robs uh, some place that was connected to Billy Jack alone. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I know. Okay. And then Jack and Billy called That's right. I was always taught not to talk about that kind of shit. So I think that was like sixty-seven or sixty-eight. The Carl's Chop House thing was, I think, sixty-nine. Yeah. yeah. When Frank famously went in and we got him a plaque for his birthday. Arm robbery at and proprietor of Carl's Chop House for twenty minutes. We Which was a very that. popular steakhouse, uh, was one of the Jack Loney's favorite spots. Yeah. Um, I used to go there when I was a young kid with my grandparents because they you know Jack Loney, man. You know he had that prosthetic uh leg on his yeah. right knee from the knee down, it was prosthesis, right? Right. He lost his when leg. I when broke he was my kid. leg uh for the eighth time or whatever, and I was in track and he have a car pick me up, we'd have coffee like three or four times a week over there in Clinton Township. And he would take his leg off. He goes, "Hey, Polly, man, I'm on my last leg over here." <laughs> Started hitting me with the leg and shit. It was like, and I, then my kid. One time, my son comes and sees me at the coffee shop with the more outside. He's like, "Dad, is that like you, Vito Jackaloni, the guy that's on the news?" And I go, "Yeah." And I go, "Hey, Mr. G, this is my son." He said, "Go get Polly a bottle of Dago Red from the car, you know." So they give my son a bottle of wine. My son's like, oh, my God, I'm going to keep this. I'm going to frame it. I'm never going to drink this. And like a week later, I went to his apartment. And, you know, it's in the garbage. <laughs> yeah, I never heard it. anyone say a negative thing about Billy Jack alone. Oh, this man could talk among paupers and princes. It's, you know, any level of society he was very comfortable with and very well read. I mean, he was a good guy. I don't I know him as a good guy. Maybe they did some bad things in the regular world, but not in their world. You know what I mean? It's kind of hard to explain. They were very, um, it wasn't just a Detroit thing with them. I mean, they, Billy and Tony uh, could go to any city in America and they'd roll out the red carpet. For no. them. 
When I was in Milan, I wanted to meet the guy that ran the joint. Now, Milan is about the fifth largest prison in the United States. You know, they got about 16, 1,700 people. And I said, who runs this joint? And they said, well, it's Big Mo from Chicago. So I said, well, I want to get my currency through him. But I already got credibility, so he'll front me the money so I can buy stuff. You know, for, you know, they can't get in the commissary and the currency stamps. So I go to meet Big Mo, and he's like, hey, man, Big Mo wasn't much on conversation. But he's like, you know, I uh, uh, heard you connected you to gangster lawyer. And I'm like, well, I used to be, I guess. And he's like, well, he says, you know, Mr. Tony Giacalone, I was in Florence, Colorado with him. You know, he's a good dude, man. He said, but he'd be fucking with them guys nonstop. I'm like, uh, yeah, I didn't really know Tony. He's been in prison. I mean, I think he was in prison before I turned 18. I don't know. He's <laughs> been in prison a long time. So that's all Tony, I know. Tony actually didn't do, when you, when you uh, you know, go kind of go pound for pound, Tony did some time when he was younger. But as a wise guy, as like a, as the, you know, the street boss, he only did that one kind of, that one seven-year sentence uh, between 79 and 86 he, he did some i think some shorter things maybe in the 60s but billy did more billy did more time than tony did oh i well, i'm unaware of that i didn't think billy did that much time i think he got a well billy did a billy did a bunch of like three little, four year bit like three yeah, four year bits. and then the last time they got a, he got a year but you got to understand know, the last the last la, billy did six years on on the uh the game tax case which was the big Rico that came down against all the leaders of the Detroit mob in 96, Frank, the bomb and Jackie Jackaloni were not indicted in that. Right. But you know, the funny thing about <laughs> this, they called the gang that couldn't shoot straight because they were taxing people on the street. So in other words, we had a bar on seven mile Gratiot and you know, bars, you know, you have gambling operations all that, and they come to you and they want you to pay a street tax. Most people just voluntarily give it up. You know, they want about 800 to a thousand a month. If you're taking any action in there, and like we just talk, just go fuck yourself. You, can't, you know, it's a different day and age. And most people were giving it up voluntarily. That's what they got pinched for. That's not a very high profit scheme. No, it was all shakedowns. They didn't have any murders uh, right. in that indictment. Exactly. It was. It was. It were thirty year shakedowns and and illegal. And they all. And they now in the modern day, everybody cooperates too. Rick Perron, uh, you know, I don't want to say the name, whatever. You know the guys involved, whatever. But everybody well, cooperates. Yeah. You know? well, so you have you have a situation where Detroit is actually a an outlier in the sense that they have not had a lot of cooperators. They have not had uh, a lot of guys die in prison or or die in the streets. Well, absolutely, the most part, right. And you know, you got to understand, Detroit is the pipeline to Canada. Yeah. All the narcotics that were coming through from. You know, come through uh, Montreal or Toronto. They come in the pathways of you know Saint Clair County or Detroit, and that's where the Outlaw Clubhouse, the very small bastion of the Outlaws, but it's a pipeline to Canada, and they work hand in hand with the Detroit. Well, they call it mafia. I don't. I never said that word. It's the the, the outfit. I don't know. Yeah, wow. Detroit people don't know that. That like you know Chicago, they call it the outfit. It's more of an understood term in yeah. Detroit. The newspapers and the media call it the Detroit mob or the partnership right. or the combination. Yeah, I had a connection to the New Orleans mafia or outfit. That's the birthplace of the mob, by the right. way. Right. In America, in the, eight, in the 1800s. But yeah. in, 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 in Detroit, now, uh, they call it the outfit as well. I didn't have a connection to any Detroit guys. I was, I had to, instead of going and getting in trouble for some of my antics, I did a rehab stint down there in Mississippi. And 
one of the Traficantes that was related to him was a grandson or whatever, maybe by marriage, it doesn't matter. And that's how I met that guy. And I met some guys from New Orleans. So they knew some guys from Detroit after that. And I would go, you know, I mean, I didn't pull you into that world when we were down there, but you know. No, we didn't meet. I didn't. We didn't meet with any wise guys and down there. I don't think Al Prophet were down there for. A I don't think thing. it ever came up. You and you and your boy, uh, one of your yeah, boys, right. Brian, were down there for something different, and we ended up hanging out. Right. Uh, yeah, it never came up. I didn't know you were doing a gig. We definitely did not run into. I would have taken you there, man. I mean, I would have loved to. No, don't. No, do, I'm not saying it like I would have been opposed to it. If oh, you no, would have said, I mean, "Hey, I got some uh, some Marcello Prime Family Soldiers to introduce you to," I would have. It's got. In case you didn't notice, I was kind of busy anyway. Right. <laughs> and um, so, so talk a little bit about um working with the bikers that you met through. Uh, the you know, and, this and is Bonnaroo. funny, man. I got to tell you this. I got to tell you this. this one now, I shouldn't say working with, but like representing them. Well, okay. I'll just tell you about it. When, now, if this lawyer tried to rip me off on a referral fee, now, you know, all lawyers, we get one third of anything you refer to another lawyer. And uh, this guy, I, I understood that he got 120000 cash. And uh, I called the lawyer up and I says, hey, man, you sent me 5000 You know, that means you owe me 40000 That's cash off the top. We pay referrals off the top because the longer the money stays in your pocket, the more it becomes yours. So you just do the right thing. And he said, no, I will pay you when I, I will amortize these payments in 1099. You and all this other lawyer talk. I said, what, what the fuck are you talking about? He says, I'm the biker lawyer here in Detroit. I represent all the bikers. And he said, and fuck you or who you know or who you think you know. I will pay you when I feel like paying you over the next two years. And I said, well, you know, I said, you know what? That movie, The Lincoln Lawyer, you know, the part where the, the bikers chase the lawyer down yeah, to pay down him? The car, yeah. that, that doesn't happen in the real world. As a matter of fact, they hardly ever pay. We do favor for favor type things. And I said, well, then, okay. I called Frankie the bomb, him, and the few biker types went over to the office, and the lawyer paid me within the hour. In the bag, and I taxed his ass for that too, man. You know, <laughs> so I guess who I thought I know was pretty cool. Did you get? Did but you spend time with Taco? I I know I've met him a few times. Yeah. What was it? What was he like? What was Taco Bowman like? They say he had a look that could kill you with his eyes. Well, I, I'm going to tell you one of the first times I met him. I said I called him Harold, which is a no-no in that world. His name was Harry Taco Bowman, right? Right, but you can't call him Harry or Harold. Right, right. A no-no. And I, I, I just like to fuck with people once in a while. So I go, "Hey, Harold, you want to hear a good one?" And he just fucking stared at me like, man, he's kind of pissed off. I said, "Yeah, the guy came to my office the other day. He wants to sue you because he lived in Gross Point, and the guy cut his lawn for like two years, and Taco wouldn't pay him." So I go, yeah, man, he wants to sue you, man, for uh, non-payment of fees. And he goes, well, how's that lawsuit going? I go, pretty fucked up. I think I lost it or I was negligent or something. And he started cracking up as a sociopathic, you know, by nature. But he like so I went with him pretty good. You said you he you mentioned that he lived in Gross Point. We talked yeah. about him on an episode uh, earlier this fall. We did a whole kind of life and we call it life and crimes of Taco oh. Bowman, and he moved into Gross Point where all of the the big uh, wise guys were, were all the uh, capos yeah. and, and mob bosses. Well, were. He's from Marysville. It's a small, it's it's closest yeah. thing to Mayberry RFD that I've ever seen. Cause that's where I live right now. I moved it's up, to it's up in the sticks. It's, it's a yeah, good I, uh, it's 45 minutes from Detroit. 
Well, here's the funny part, man. The feds, they've got these tactics to break you, to, I mean, just bleed them till you bleed them, that kind of stuff. I mean, here I moved to Marysville. It's two hours away from downtown Detroit. It's two the hours? Port, two hours? Port, I just said 45 minutes. It's two hours? No, it's about an hour and a half to two hours. In the winter, it's two hours. Two hours I didn't realize how bad it was. How, long, how far away? Now, the, the Eastern District of Michigan, the court is five minutes from my house. That's where the my court, court is. Court, you're on court? Yes. Go five on. minutes from my house. Okay. The, the, the feds would make me, they would call me to go downtown to drug tests and alcohol tests, sometimes three times a week. 10 times a month. My court order said three times a month. But they were constantly doing this to harass you and rouse you and the whole thing. And they would call. I get a phone call. You got to be downtown. The marshals are going to pick you up and blah, blah, blah. Man, you just got to pack it up. You got to go. It's an all-day affair. And I bring it up in front of the judge. And the judge says, well, you know, I can't believe our we don't have the sophistication to test him here. But that's all that was said. And they still made me go downtown. Constantly, this happened for two and a half years. Did you did you ever have to take uh, Frank the bomb to the uh, Fed's office in in downtown Detroit? No, no, you no, were just, uh, no. You were just handling the Macomb County stuff. Uh, I mean, I was at his house when the Feds came to see him. Uh, we were looking for Taco right. when he was on the run. I was at his house, yeah. And I was, fuck, I didn't want to talk to no FBI guys. Man, he was just like he was laughing about it. Yeah, he said, "Oh, he told the FBI guy, yeah, I just seen Taco. He just had the fence in the back. He was with Jimmy Hoffa." <laughs> he right. told the FBI guys, and they started laughing and they laughed. You know, that was the extent of it. You know, but well, when, well, when, the, when the FBI comes, hey, by the way, when the FBI comes to see me, the very first time, Scott, the very first time, you know, nine agents don't come to your house unless something's up. You know what I mean? Yeah. And when I said, "Hey, man, you know this guy you're talking about, this drug dealer." He got popped by the DEA. Where are you guys from? And they all flipped their cards all FBI. So I already knew it was nothing to do with drugs. They wanted information on judicial bribery, yeah. pro- political corruption, and delivery of mob money for political influence. That's what they wanted. So uh, they go on and they see your phone. So they start going through my phone. It's not every person, probably close to never, that's got a bunch of mob bosses, narcotics, undercover cops, a bunch of criminals, you know, with well-known names and stuff like that. And when they got the, they got the Scott Bernstein, they got, you know, I had your number on my phone. Sorry about that. But anyway, they said, Bernstein, is that the Scott Bernstein? I said, yeah, the author guy. And they said, yeah, well, we don't want his number. We definitely don't want his number. And they just start laughing. So I didn't, I was thinking, what the fuck? Is this Bernstein FBI guy or something? <laughs> yeah, let's be very clear that there are some I, I people know. that somehow believe that I'm like a uh, an arm, like a media arm of yeah. the federal government when that couldn't be further from the truth. Well, I mean, what are you supposed to think when you're, you're surrounded by FBI agents in your house? You know, yeah. That's never happened. I'm just saying, I feel like when anybody actually meets me, any of the people that I write about, when they finally, if, if it, it, you know, uh, for both of our sakes, we get to kind of uh, have a meeting of the minds. I think they right. all come away with the knowledge that that is, again, the furthest thing from the truth. I will take a wise guy's word for what they're telling me. Um, a lot of times I'll take it over what the feds are taking or telling yeah. me. I'm not a, I'm not, I, I make my own decisions. I'm objective. I know it's being shaded on both sides. Scotty, I used to be a big fan of the FBI because I witnessed so much criminal activity amongst judges, prosecutors, and law enforcement. I witnessed so much of this stuff that to me, I thought, wow, the FBI, you know, they're there to clean this stuff up. I didn't know how rogue they were. 
they're becoming a fourth branch of government without any checks and balances. The only check and balance they have is the attorney generals who rubber stamps whatever they do. So they've just become, uh, I mean, they're, they're unlimited funding. They have nothing but time. And anything that's in their path, they will destroy if you don't give them information. It's uh, Listen, they hired 1,000, over 1,000 Gustavo agents after the World War II. They brought them here to America to set up the FBI playbook. <laughs> the only difference is they don't beat you with you know, pistol whip, your, pull your fingernails out or shock treat you and stuff like that. You know. I, I want to ask you something, and, and it's totally okay if you don't want to um, go there, but I, I was able to get my hands on a photo uh, from a source, and it, it looks like there was a point in the 2000s where – the leadership of the Detroit mob was holding meetings at your, <laughs> either at your house, or your law office. Um, I, again, you don't have to, you don't have necessarily have to no, it's it, it, show, it show, it definitely demonstrates the, the level of trust they had with you. Oh yeah. Um, well, you know, everybody knew I wouldn't talk. I mean, everybody knew I just was built into this world. You know I mean? It was a perfect. Fit. I know I didn't talk. To be around. I mean, not to, not like you. I did a couple of things with these guys, and we made money together. But no, you know, I never killed. I never whacked nobody or had nothing to do with that kind no, of stuff. No, but what I'm saying though is that picture shows me, without you telling me this, just me getting my hands on this photo, that the I think that the photo was from like 2000 and maybe six. Oh, I think I know what you're talking about. She didn't six. allow no pictures there. What happened was no. I someone snapped a photo, and it was like. Billy Jackaloni, Alan yeah. Health, Tony Palazzolo, Jack Jackaloni. Right. Yeah. They're all. Yeah. And what happened was I, uh, Jackaloni's daughter, I used to get my hair cut from her husband over in Gross Point. So we had a little connection there. And I asked her one time, I says, I know there's no pictures allowed, in the, you know, but would you take this picture? Would you orchestrate to take this as a present for a friend of mine? Is what I said. And she did it. Now, nobody would screw with her because it's just the daughter took it. And then she gave me a copy of it. So that's well, what I did you, what did you think of Tony Palazzolo? He's a nice guy. That's all I know him as a very nice guy. Very respectful, very nice guy. He was a downriver guy. He, he didn't yeah, really he wasn't from our side of town. I don't know. Yeah, maybe downriver, but he was a very nice guy. And he and was had a, Alan Hilter, whatever his name Alan was. Alan was Jackie's best friend, the Jewish bookie. Yeah, and then <laughs> what's the other Jewish guy they used to bring over? Man, we went on a 98-foot yacht. And I'll never forget this. I thought it was going to be like Donnie Brasco, you know, with the bottles of champagne and the broads and the jacuzzi and all that shit. And, and the old man freaked out because the Jewish guy brought a broad to the boat, you know, and he freaked out. He's like, there's no broads coming to this party. They'll fuck the whole party up. You know, real old school shit. I'm like, wow, we're going on a yacht and no women. <laughs> That's a trip. <laughs> what business do we need to discuss? <laughs> Am I coming back alive? I don't know. Well, you know, uh, you know that uh, the the FBI believes that Tony Palazzolo was actually with Billy Jackaloni when Jimmy Hoffa was murdered. So it's hmm. at least that's the belief of the FBI. Uh, Billy Jackaloni was unaccounted for that afternoon. He he had shook his surveillance unit. Yeah, he's always going to be unaccounted for. Yeah, I, I I just understand from my perspective that he didn't really want to do that, but that order came from New York. Well, it, it definitely uh, was something that, you know, everybody needed 
to sign off on. Uh, it wasn't something that you could just do without consensus. So, yeah, there was a lot of coordination between Detroit, New York. You know, in the scheme of things, too, Chicago, you about it. Here's Jimmy Hoffa. Jimmy Hoffa takes this union pension fund, and then a guy in Chicago does the same exact thing a couple yeah. years later. That right. guy in Chicago, I can't remember his name. Tony Accardo. Yeah, he did the same thing. Right. <laughs> you know, Tony Spilatro uh, and Joey Iupa. And did you hear uh, the most? Did you hear that most recent? You, you probably didn't hear about it. Uh, that that um, some old cop from Milwaukee came out a month or two ago. And said that Joey Ayupa, who was the Chicago mob boss, had, yeah, yeah, had no, his body uh, buried under Milwaukee County Stadium. Right, he just it's, it's retarded. I don't know. He wants to, somebody wants to get noticed, you know. Another wannabe. Hey, incidentally, have you ever met more wannabe gangsters than the East Side of Detroit? I mean, seriously, I lived around the country. Uh, I had a condo in South America. I've been to Europe. I've never met so many wannabe gangsters. <laughs> yeah, it, we could, you know, people talk about, uh, you know, the uh, this kind of Jersey Shore influence in, in the New York youth culture. And, and I would say that the, it's analogous to what you have sometimes on the east side of Detroit. Yes. Where these guys yes, could be, have their own absolutely. little Jersey. They could have their own Jersey Shore show. I absolutely agree with you, man. I was a Jersey <laughs> kid. I can't even tell you. I thought, man, I looked out the window. I was I said, man, New York's just so awesome. I went to Chinatown, Little Italy, and a real Jewish deli, man. Yeah, you know, I was in heaven. And I looked out, I said, man, I didn't realize they have a coastline here with the waves coming. And the guy goes, hey, asshole, what do you think you're at? I go, I'm in New York. He said, no, man, this is Belmar, New Jersey. I'm like, <laughs> oh. He goes, New York, that's three hours away, dude. <laughs> I was partying a little bit. You know, <laughs> you know. <laughs> you know. So uh, let's just let people know, like, what – Let's talk about your case for a second, and then we'll get to the book. Okay, I am in let fact. Know, first, we'll let people know uh, where they can where they can. Okay, get. I am in fact the first American citizen that's ever been to a federal prison for what they what I pled to was aiding and abetting drug trafficking, where people did some lines of cocaine, thereby creating the possibility that they might do another one. Not necessarily at my house. Maybe down the street, maybe at a bar, or maybe on Venus or fucking Mars. I don't know where else. <laughs> but that's what I pled to. When I went up to the, they never fulfilled the element of profit. There's never been an allegation. Over 100 interviews, not one allegation. So I brought it up to the judge. And it's in, it's on the federal record, by the way, verbatim. Brought it up to the judge, there's no element of profit. And the judge says, no, I disagree. It's what economists refer to as psychic rent. It means I profited in my own mind. So I said, well, ask the judge if I can go to fucking McDonald's, buy a Big Mac, uh, fucking fries and a, and a Coke, and pay for it with the profit in my fucking mind, you know? Because my fucking lawyer's nodding out in court and shit, you know? <laughs> she said, shut up or you're going to do another two So years. how did, how was the, what's the rationale there that you benefited by somehow uh, these people are going to like you and do you favors because you're giving them cocaine? Uh, no, I never gave anybody or introduced anybody. If it's somebody wants to do it, it's I don't know. It's up to them. Yeah, what, what's the what's the thought process behind psychic? Well, they try to get me to sign this plea agreement that I set the drug dealer up with customers, which never uh, I would sign. But I was facing 105 years at the time, and I still wouldn't sign it. Then they they ultimately dismissed that and reindicted me on this aiding and abetting theory. 
No, I am. I'm on the fucking Google. You just hit the fucking name. I'm the first person ever in the Eastern District of Michigan to do 500 hours of community service, hard labor. They put. I mean, this is two in the 2000s. They could sentence you to hard labor for no money. 500 hours. They only use community service to barter down jail time. They couldn't in my case because I maxed myself out in the guidelines. Period. You know, I never thought I was going to go to prison. At least I was told I wasn't. You know, and so uh, they maxed me out on that, and and uh, I still got 500 hours. Uh, the first day on the job, they gave me a sledgehammer. They saw me start knocking out fucking bricks and taking these 50 to 70 pound boxes up two flights of stairs. It it was like I don't know what do you call it, excessive. <laughs> I mean, so they so they nailed you for brokering coke deals without actually taking a percentage of the said deal. No, that wasn't no kickback. It's not even alleged that I did that. It's not even a left. But, but if they're saying you're aiding and abetting, doesn't the, doesn't the aiding and abetting meaning A, you're helping facilitate the deal, and B, the only way you aid and the, the first charge Scott, was using an electronic device to facilitate drug trafficking, ordering a gram of cocaine. Now, that's done for people that don't want to touch the product, but they traffic right. it by a computer or a phone. I was not, all I did was order a gram for myself or two. That's all I've ever done. And I, when I was running for judge, you got to remember, I was on a few weeks shy of being a judge. And I I reached out, told, told the newspapers. I said, despite my prior indiscretions, I'm still the most qualified for this uh, for this judgeship or whatever the fuck you call it. Man. So, <laughs> I was already retired. I didn't need the money or nothing like that. I mean, for where I come from, I was already rich beyond my wildest dream. You know, I got a condo. I got a building. I got a place in uh, you know, whatever, house, all that shit. Everything was just about paid for. So I figured I'll retire and just, you know, give the store away until they kick me off the bench, you know what I mean, for lower working class hardship cases. So like, so tell people how you started writing the book. Called It's called From Pepperdine to Prison. Yeah, um, It's a great read. It's a fast read. And you really get an inside look into this. I'm telling you, I, I say this about everybody, but it's it's a it's a. It's different with Paulie because, again, you're seeing it from a completely different lens. Oh, that's cool. It's a, movie, it's a movie script. I mean, it really is. I, you know what? A lot of people tell me that, that it's a reason more like a movie. I, I don't know because I watch a ton of movies. I love movies, and I'm just I'm just a movie junkie. And I used to work at 20th Century Fox uh, in uh, California. I got a job there. It was in 1985. Man, I was making $20 an hour, and I never went to the legal. I only went there one time to the legal department. I just walked around watching Hollywood movies. So, you know. so what was the process like of writing the book? Um, you know, writing the book was not, I don't know, it just kind of came natural to me. My mom used to be a book junkie, so she'd read me books all the time. So my mom was always reading me books ever since I was a kid. And writing was not that hard. Just kind of like, I was kind of, I'm like, I'm out of a job. I'm out of a career. I don't know what to do. Well, maybe, you know, maybe this will be my public service to educate the public, see what comes out. Now, at the time, I was still under federal probation from the threats of the federal government. They're still pulling me over all the time, rousting you and all that other stuff. So I was kind of backed up. I didn't want to get me reindicted. I'm like, if you notice, I was not charged with any bribery, no tax evasion. They put in a petition for they didn't tax. get you for any of public corruption, even though they every fucking lawyer, this big every thing. lawyer, every gangster in the world gets a tax evasion charge right. because we deal in most cash. So my, my when I had to go to the federal government to be audited, I mean, I mean, boxes 
three boxes of documents going 10 years back. And the last time when my taxes were filed, uh, I claimed 267, 287, 313,000. And that's just the checks, my man. <laughs> Who knows what happened to all that cash? <laughs> Everybody still thinks I got it buried, and I'm living on a Michigan bridge car. Okay, I'm living in a van down by the river. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell, you them, know. tell everyone where they can get it. Oh, oh my God, it's available now. It's available on all kinds of mediums. Oh, I tell you, the only the only white lie I said in this book is right on the cover. I, I try to make myself look six foot three. Because I'm not six foot three, and I never will be. But I just thought it would be funny to do that. But uh, it's available on Amazon, or you just go www.frompepperdineprison.com. And uh, yeah, I got a lot of good feedback because the people that are paying for this are paying inordinately into this system of corruption. And they're not, it's a very secretive world, just like the mob guys are. You know, the judges are the same way. Listen, this is the, the worst criminals I've ever seen are from judges. The guys that, you know, that you're paying to, to administer justice fair and impartial. <laughs> it's nothing like that. And I'm not saying all of them. I'm, I'm saying in my my view, around 50%. I mean, I could get to a lot of these guys, you know, money talks. You know what I mean? When you watch a judge steal a 10-pound bag of cheese, what do you think he'll do for real money? When you watch a judge grab one of your envelopes of cash and stick it in his fucking pocket because he thinks you owe him because you're making money in his court, he's taxing you, right? <laughs> what do you think he'll do for real money? Now, I'm not the only one that's happened to. I understand from the editors in New York City, which is the best editing firm, I believe, in the country, Kevin Anderson and Associates, that I'm just the first person to write about this because it's a very secretive world and nobody wants to cut their own throat. In my case, I don't care. I'm old enough. I'm never going to give my law license back. My way of doing things is over. You got to be a realist. You know what I mean? Right. And uh, I figured, uh, why not? I write a book. Uh, I wrote it like the first half of it. Uh, I started writing. I never owned a computer, a laptop. I never been on social media, none of that. So I, I handled it. And then I got a computer delivered to me. And every day I'd write, Paul is an asshole. Paul is a big asshole. Blah, 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 blah. And you know, Paul is an asshole. Lives in Maryland. Blah, blah, blah. I learned how to fight. You got to have a good sense of humor to live what you uh, live through what you've lived through, Paul. <laughs> Why not? I mean, what's the other? The, I mean, you know, go, go in a fetal position, start sucking your thumb, find how I want my mom and all this shit. Yeah, I felt like being in prison. I did my last six months on solitaire, man, on lockdown, because they get propagandized bullshit about early release. They gave me the early release. At prison, they called me up to the thing. So, where are you going to be ready? You have a ride home when you get out of here? I'm like, that's six months from now. I go, no, that's tomorrow morning. And the next day at 8, 8.15, I was out. I went directly to the halfway house to get a tether. And they locked me down in this uh, room for solid, you know, for COVID and all that shit. So, I'm in a room with 14 guys. I sat on a milk crate for three days. Then I finally got out of bed. Then after two weeks, I got an infection in my eye. So, they allowed me a trip to the hospital. And then they didn't know what to do with me because they're short staffed. So they stuck me in like a broom closet with uh, the security screens. So the, the telephone they give you doesn't work or the TV. You know, <laughs> you just sit there and stare at the wall, man, trying to figure things out. And I'm in bad company by myself, man. You know what I mean? <laughs> Got 16 personalities that all want to be heard from. And the last one, you need a fucking hockey helmet and a fucking drool bowl. You know what I mean? <laughs> Who doesn't know that? But so one thing they underestimated was my perseverance and my faith in God through Jesus the Christ, and that's it. 
<laughs> call it whatever you want. What does Buddha say? The best religion is the one that brings you into the light. It don't matter what path you take. Just try to take a path, man. Then go post it a little bit, you know. But you don't do nothing bad, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I want to leave. I want to leave on with one quick anecdote that kind yes. of I think encapsulates what Paul's talking about in Macomb County. And I'm not going to mention the names of judges, but I'll just give one situation that popped up in the last decade uh, where you had two guys that are allegedly part of the Sicilian faction of the Detroit mafia. And they were trying to shake down a competing business owner that had opened up an Italian restaurant across from their Italian restaurant. Oh, yeah. They beat the guy with the baseball bat. They beat the guy with a baseball bat. I mean, within inches of his life, uh, he's charged in Macomb County for attempted murder. The case gets chopped down to some third degree assault. I'm not exactly sure. I don't want to be misquoted, but it ended up being like, you know, four or five months in county jail and the rest uh, done in home confinement. This really, really upset the feds who felt like there had been some chicanery behind the scenes. They came in and hit him with a Rico based on the same exact occurrence. But at the end of the day, uh, the main, the one brother only ends up doing about 18 months. Well, you got to ask yourself this question, Scott. Yeah. Why does that same judge keep coming up in all these controversial situations? Yeah. You just ask yourself that. And then you, you, have a situ- you have a situation in the federal court system. And again, I'm not going to mention any names. Right. You don't you have, have Jack, to. You had Jack knows. Toko, who was the godfather of the Detroit mob, convicted of being the godfather of the Detroit mob, convicted of being the number one defendant in a, in a uh, racketeering conspiracy. Uh and in a in a situation where every other contemporary of his around the country would be doing thirty years, he gets sentenced to a year or less. Yeah, right, two year, year or two year. Right. And he ends up, you know, the feds had to come in and appeal it. He ends up doing like eighteen months. But See, the difference is, in my case, listen, every Macomb County, Michigan, had more indictments than L.A. County, where ten million people, or Cook County, you know. They have more indictments here pending right now, right here and now. This is all current, okay? And every single one of these politicians, save Dean Reynolds, who took his case to trial. He was a low guy in a poll, and he's doing 17 years. All these other politicians, the prosecutor, his assistants, the whole fucking gamut of these people, they're all keeping their pensions. They're all, mm-hmm. Most of them kept their jobs, you know, because they cut deals with the feds. Well, you and mentioned Eric not, Smith. Nobody went to prison. The prosecutor went for a few months and they Smith, let him out. Early. Smith went to prison, right? Right, but they put him down in the, and they put him in a camp, and he got out early. Nobody. This is the pro- this is the prosecutor that we were talking about earlier in the interview. Yes, that was trying well, to both jam of you. Them. He's trying to jam you. Meanwhile, he he's brought down in a huge corruption look, case and has to go to prison. Look, I came on the radar in 2011. What I understand is because I threw a fundraiser for Eric Smith because his office dismissed the drug driving that I had. I had a couple of you know anyway so i vowed never to drink and drive again and that was 17 years ago and i never had you know and so i was just grateful and our mothers grew up in the same neighborhood but eric smith's half italian you know that right Mm -hmm. you know his uh mom's italian and they went to with my mother they went to school together so we had a little connection there and he treated me pretty good he doesn't go to court or nothing but everybody knew what was going on i mean Dude, you can go to the fucking prosecutor's office and buy back an automobile that they seized for drugs or alcohol. 
It's $1,750. I would go there with $500 in an envelope with a post-it and just hand it to them, give this there. <laughs> you know, they're all taking cash, you know. <laughs> I'm not saying what I did was all right, but it was helping a client out and helping somebody with hardships out. Nobody was getting hurt. You know, I mean, say you're Scott Bernstein. You had too many drinks. You came to me. Hey, Paulie, what can you do? Man, I can't have this on my record. I work for a Oakland Press or wherever you work for at the time. Or, you know, okay, with the right amount of money, then we can do this or that. You know, I don't see no harm in that. You know, I mean, you're not as long as you're not hitting old school bus full of kids and shit like that. You know what I'm saying? I mean, just... Well- Paul, you just you just was you were a, an amazing tour guide or you know uh, curator to take us in, in you know in this journey through your life and through the the halls of this kind of warp justice that we have in Detroit and and in your in your relationships and um, experiences with some of these these big time Detroit mob guys that were tied into the Hoffa case. This was awesome. This was one of my favorite interviews I've done. Paulie, thank you so much. Come on, man. You're, you're awesome. You know, I never in a million years would think I'd be talking to you on a Zoom. I I think this is my first time I ever Zoom. Well, we're going to be do, – we'll do it. We're going to do another in-person <laughs> one uh, just, for, just to tease it out here. Yeah, but you've uh, got, you got your buddy Steve Fishman, who's one of the best lawyers in Detroit, and yeah. the number one uh, attorney gangster and some shit like that. And, I, you know, I called him on the phone after I seen him on the TV. <laughs> To just ask him about something, <laughs> he said, "Hey man, what are you trying to do? Reopen your case?" I go, "No, I'm trying to shut up other people. Just tell me that I don't have a case, okay?" Uh, <laughs> he was pretty cool about it. Th- this was uh, this was great, and again, we're going to do another one that's going to be for a uh, just for a Detroit media outlet, but okay. we'll also share it on on Original Gangsters podcast, and that will be a little bit probably more centered to- uh, on his case. But sure. uh, that that's okay. going to come up in the next well, let's say, couple months. But this will be on YouTube and on uh, Apple, iTunes, Spotify. Uh, oh, we're, we're, we are incredibly. Uh, it's you joining us was very gracious and, you know, I and being you as something. forthright as you've been and and giving us this this great this great insight and perspective. Well, I'm going to just be honest with you too. It's, it's never really come up. So I touch on it in the book. Uh, I touch on a lot of things in the book, so some people are aware. But now um, I have the freedom to say whatever I want and whatever. Ask away. It's kind of cool. This was awesome. Thank you, Paulie. Have a great holidays. We'll see you you next week on another long form episode of the OG pod. I'm Scott Bernstein.